Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a big television. The 90s, what was that like? It was great. My answer a little bit of the 90s in 2019. It's delicious. Labour was the obvious home for those disillusioned musicians and their fans. I think Tony Blair was the first political pop star. It was an era where there was a very public endorsement of a politician saying, this guy is offering a new way forward. And I don't think I'd ever seen that before in my lifetime. The whole system encouraged everybody to misbehave. So we kind of misbehaved quite regularly. And there was a sense that really something different had to come along. Now, I think Britpop filled that gap. It was absolutely necessary. It still sounds good. The Britpop stuff still sounds like a wonderful part of British music history. You're listening to Britpop. You've got to roll with it. The story of Cool Britannia. It's been 25 years since Britpop mania, and tonight we're looking at the inextricable link between music and politics during the 90s and what gave us moments like this. Oi! There are seven people in this room tonight who are giving a little bit of hope to young people in this country. That is me, our kid, Bonehead, Quigsy, Alan White... Alan McGee and Tony Blair. And if you all got anything about you, you get up there and you shake Tony Blair's hand, man. He's a man. Power to the people! The 1996 Brit Awards. During the next hour, I'll guide you through a journey of the music and politics of the 90s, an era that gave us Tamagotchis, bucket hats and, of course, Britpop. We'll be hearing from former politicians to ex-band members, lovers and haters of Britpop, as well as journalists and academics. But we need to start, as all things do, at the beginning. In the early 80s, England was coming off the back of the miners' strike, where over 140,000 miners stopped work under Prime Minister of the time, Margaret Thatcher. The UK was a really different place, both musically and politically, and here's music and politics professor John Street. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the way in which music found itself linked to politics in, in the 90s was the legacies of the 1980s where you know there had been attempts to bring musicians together with politics particularly things like Red Wedge in the mid 80s and you had NME becoming a quite political magazine so there was a sense in which politics was something that you took an interest in if you were a musician or if you were a fan and of course we were going through a long period of uh, of, of conservative government and austerity and the miners' strike and a whole lot of stuff that was, was creating very kind of a harsh life for young people particularly. Oh, what a long, long strike. But if we have to go through it all again, we would still stand up and fight. The striking miners attacked union officials Henry Richardson and Ray Chadburn for failing to bring their men out. Former Labour MP for Northampton, Sally Keeble. It had been really grim. I mean, I'd been working in Birmingham as a reporter and covered some of the riots there and then when I was in London there were the riots in Brixton. I was council leader in Southwark when we were just doing the poll tax, so there were the poll tax riots and there was a real, real anger. When I was a reporter in Birmingham I saw all the in industrial collapse and that was, that was catastrophic so there was a real mood of anger. Now, before the explosion of Britpop and the colossal support of the new Labour movement in the 90s, the 80s saw an emergence of dance music with growth in electronic, techno and synthesizers. And here's songwriter Jamie Petrie. It was a transitional period because there were some... Through the 80s, it was so innovative because we suddenly had things like Electro was introduced. So, you know, late, very late 70s, early 80s, you know, we had bands like Depeche Mode, Human League, Fat Gadget, uh, John Fox. All these artists, they were making electronic music. Um, and not just in the UK, you know, in Europe and America. And while electronic music was riding high, the same wasn't necessarily true for guitar-based songs. Here's music journalist Michael Hahn. Now, in terms of guitar bands, British music had been in a bit of a fallow period. After the baggy thing died down at the end of the 80s and the early 90s, uh, we'd had grunge coming from America, and there was, a, there was a huge vacancy. The kings of grunge, Nirvana, had released their second album, Nevermind, in 1991, which would go on to be one of the best-selling alternative albums of the 90s. In the UK, though, young music fans were hungry for something a little bit more upbeat. Punk and techno had come to an end. What was next? 
Here's comedian Matt Ford talking about the positive impact of music in the 90s. Everyone talks about the transition from people listening to Nirvana to listen to Oasis. And I think that was a really big deal because just as a young kid growing up in a country that until then had felt a bit crap, had felt backwards, had felt regressive, all of a sudden you had this huge positive impact that music can have on massive gigs. Catatonia singer Keris Matthews. It was a movement in the 90s because all of a sudden there were many of us that were plundering the 1960s and the 1970s psychedelic sort of era, Kevin Ayres and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, because Catatonia weren't so straightforward, one, two, three, four, rock, beatly kind of thing. We, we did like the unusual chords, changes and kind of big epic um, sounding songs. In the early 90s, February 22nd, 1993 to be exact, the band called Suede released their third single. It was a brand new sound, different from grunge, and it was very British. This, along with Select Magazine's infamous front cover declaring Yanks Go Home and the Battle for Britain with Suede's Brett Anderson was seen as the start of Britpop. You couldn't help but listen to Britpop. You know, the usual suspects like Suede, Blur, Oasis, even Supergrass, actually. The term Britpop soon became a catch-all term for many of the UK's guitar bands. One of these would go on to become the epitome of Britpop, Blur. Here's former drummer and Labour councillor Dave Roundtree on how the band got started. I went to see, and Graham took me to uh, an early gig of Damon's, and uh, it was obvious at that point that Damon had uh, talent for writing tunes, so I knew I had to latch myself onto Damon, because <laughs> he was going places. Here's Mark Waterman, producer for the rock band Elastica, whose self-titled debut record were placed at number one in the UK charts in 1995. I was working at EMI Publishing in the demo studios in Rathbone Place, uh, just recording band, all kinds of bands and music. And one of the A&R man, Mike Smith, said to me, do I know of any bass players? And uh, I knew a guitarist in Brighton called Annie, who was a really old friend of mine, and in the time I hadn't seen her for a few years, but I knew she was as good as any guitarist or bass player I'd came across. And they immediately were like, this is the person for us. And then they'd arranged to come in and do some recording down at the EMI demo studios. They walked in the room with additionally Donna and Justin from the Spitfire. And it was almost like they were kind of a cartoon band almost. First sessions we did became the first two singles and ended up on the album, I believe, Stutter and Lineup. So it was just kind of an instantaneous thing. And Annie completely fitted in with them and, and it was really Justine's kind of vision and drive behind it. And of course, it wouldn't be a story about Britpop without mentioning the other super heavyweight, Oasis. Here's Noel Gallagher talking about how it happened. I called home like, with a weekly phone call and my mum said that Liam was rehearsing. She said, yeah, he's a singer in a band, which was mind-blowing enough. Considering I'd shared a bedroom with this idiot for the best part, well, all his life up to that point, and I've been playing the guitar and he never once broken the song. So when I come back to Manchester, they was in this band called The Rain. Right. So I went to see them at the boardwalk and they, they were actually quite good. They had something. One Sunday, they had to pass my house and they just doorstepped me and picked me up and said, come on. So I went and, and did it. And I've got to say, as the band started playing and I joined in, I thought, oh, I quite like this. And then it all changed the night. I wrote Live Forever. Maybe I don't really want to know how you got in gross. Cause I just want to fly lately. Did you ever feel the pain in the morning rain? I just soaked you to the bone. Maybe I just want to fly. Want to live but don't want to die. Maybe I just want to
By the mid-90s, bands like Oasis, Blur, Elastica and more were taking Britain by storm. The Gallagher brothers, never one to shy away from some controversy, were causing stirs in the press and were making the headlines every other day, but not always for their songs. No one could have anticipated the meteoric rise of these bands. Here's Alan McGee, founder of Creation Records. No, nobody had any idea. Nobody, nobody knew. I just thought I was signing a band that was maybe you know, the Stone Roses or something. You know what I mean? Newsreader Catherine McGinn. Oasis and bands like them felt very organic, that they'd sort of developed this whole new scene, and this was a scene that was going to continue to perpetuate itself, that was going to continue to grow, that was going to continue to spawn new acts, new artists, new bands, that really put British music back on the map and was going to keep it there for quite a long time into the future. Elastica producer Mark Waterman. If you think of Oasis, uh, the Beatles and... Blair of the Kings, but Lastkovich is nasty. Elastica there with their hit single, Connection, released in 1994. But Britpop wasn't the only thing taking Britain by storm. After almost two decades of conservative rule, the British people seem to be yearning for something different. Enter New Labour. The Labour Party rebranded in 1994 after facing calls to modernise and offered fresh policies that connected with the masses. The fresh-faced leader also proved to be a hit, Tony Blair. After being elected as an MP in 1983, Blair was voted as leader of the Labour Party in 94, beating both John Prescott and Margaret Beckett. He quickly gained popularity, particularly amongst young people, by promising what he calls a better Britain, New Labour because Britain deserves better. But alongside policy, his youth and charisma were real assets to both him and the so-called New Labour Party. Here's Professor John Street again. You know, the fact that Blair could credibly hold a Fender Stratocaster and look as if he knew which way he was supposed to be facing and so on, and the fact that he'd been in a band himself. The band was called The Ugly Rumours and formed whilst Tony Blair was studying law at St John's College, Oxford, during the early 70s. He sang and played guitar. You could get a veneer of coolness off this association between Blur and Oasis and Labour that allowed the Labour Party to present itself as a real alternative to the kind of tired old Conservatives. Mark Ellen, who was a member of that band, Ugly Rumours, along with Blair and Adam Sharples. He was very interested in the idea that if we were going to do it, it was going to be to the best of our ability. And uh, he turned up and, uh, using a small microphone, did a kind of... <laughs> through some shapes <laughs> and uh, we were very impressed and he was signed up immediately. This factor immediately set Blair apart from previous leadership candidates. Broadcaster Simon Mayo. There was this sense of a new beginning and I think for that reason alone a lot of people were very excited and Tony Blair was this very charismatic, telegenic uh, Prime Minister. We hadn't had someone like that as Prime Minister for uh, my entire lifetime. Forget the past. No more bosses versus workers. We are on the same side, the same team, and Britain United will win. The mood of the nation seemed to have very much shifted from the turmoil of the 80s and now seemed much more hopeful. And it wasn't just politicians commenting on historic class divisions. Jarvis Cocker was singing about class division as well. Common People was released in May 1995 and would go on to become one of Pulp's highest charting records. And she just left us and said, Are you so funny? I said, Yeah. I can't see anyone else smiling. Are you sure? You want to live like common people. You want to see whatever common people see. Want to sleep with common people. You want to sleep with common people like me. But she didn't understand. And she just smiled and held my on April the 5th, 1994, Britpop was already on the rise, 
But suddenly, the grunge movement came to a juddering halt. The lead singer of the enormously popular rock band Nirvana is dead. Apparently, he was a suicide at the age of 27. Kurt Cobain's body was found inside a garage apartment adjacent to his Seattle home, dead of an apparently self-inflicted shotgun wound. Kurt Cobain's death marked the definitive end of the international grunge movement. Meanwhile, back in the UK, Britpop was only just getting started. And 20 days after the death of Kurt Cobain, on April the 25th, 1994, Blur happened to change the course of music history and release their career-changing album, Park Life. as well as reaching the coveted number one spot in the UK charts. To this day, it remains one of Britpop's most iconic records. Blur drummer Dave Roundtree. We've gone from being a fairly small, unknown indie band, though kind of fashionable in music industry circle, to completely taking over what mainstream pop music was. No, that doesn't happen very often, and it happened. Cultures of New Labour and Britpop were becoming more and more intertwined as young people full of hope yearned for change. Tony Blair himself said that rock and roll is not just an important part of our culture, it's an important part of our way of life. Labour was very cautious about wanting to look as if they were calculating. They wanted it to look as if they had this incredible bond with, with, with the kids. In summer 1996, I was working at the New Statesman and I got a tip from someone that Labour had basically appointed a Britpop liaison officer. Uh, which was a man called Darren Kalinick, who was charged with kind of getting endorsements from pop cultural figures for, for the Blair leadership, which at that point was still a year away from the general election. And it wasn't the first time that a political party had tried to relate to popular culture. But New Labour and Tony Blair integrated themselves with surprising ease. This, of course, hadn't always been the case. Here's Professor John Street again. When Mrs Thatcher was going to be interviewed by Smash Hits, she had these incredible briefing notes on what was punk, on uh, who or what Smash Hits was, and what hits she might like to refer to. And that's how, you know, the Conservative government would have treated pop, or did treat pop music. And of course, Blair would have needed none of that. He would have known what to say, and he would have understood, you know, because it was a different generation, different culture. And comedian Matt Ford. You know, there'll always be musicians of particular political um, persuasion. I always think it is more powerful when it's a left-wing leader or, or, more to the point, a Labour leader because it does feel more like it's rooted in the working classes. And that's it for part one. Join us again for part two where we'll be speaking to the songwriter who helped create the soundtrack of New Labour as well as looking at Britpop's most infamous rivalry, Blur versus Oasis. See you in a few. You've got to roll with it on Absolute Radio. Part of our Britpop 25 series. Welcome back to Britpop, You've Got to Roll With It with me, Danielle Perry. If you've just joined us, in part one we told you all about the mood of the nation in the late 80s and how some of the most iconic Britpop bands got started. We're now mid-90s and Britpop is in full swing. In this part, we'll be looking into the genre's most famous rivalry, Blur versus Oasis, as well as the new Labour race to victory in 1997. In Betweener was Sleeper's third and breakthrough single, released on the 9th of January 95. Here's singer Louise Wenner with her view of the 90s UK music scene. It feels like it, feels like it was always sunny, sort of very sunny, sort of positive. There was a lot of, sort of optimism generally. It felt like an optimistic time. This optimism wasn't contained just in music and politics. It was also a huge part of film and TV culture, with iconic films like Train Spotting and TV shows like Channel 4's The Word. 
Football was also a large contributor to the culture of Cool Britannia, as shown with England's fans' colossal support during the Euro 96 Championships. Well, a whole load of things had changed in British society. A big thing was what happened in football, uh, which changed the way that you could perceive patriotism. The optimism created around Cool Britannia seemed to show no sign of slowing. His former Labour MP, Sally Keeble. People were really looking for something fresh and something new, and there was increasing optimism. And lead singer of Britpop band Catatonia, Keris Matthews, also thinks so. There, there was definitely a sense of hope, and this whole wave of energy and confidence and some superb music being made. Um, and on that sort of wave, you know, we cruised into a different era, as far as I'm concerned. It was a very, very positive time in that sense. And politically, you know, Labour government were coming in, so amongst us of youngsters and the you know, left-leaning creatives, it, there was a feeling of hope. But why was this happening? We were all purging on this wonderful music from the from before the 80s, you know, unashamedly so. And what great music has been from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know. And then, you know, re reworking it into our own sound, you know, back with the guitars, back with the vintage amps, you know, relishing vintage sounds rather than the 80s that had gone the decade previously. Yes, Britpop had came and conquered. 1995 featured some incredible albums, like these. <laughs> Bands like these were routinely topping the charts as well as sweeping up awards. Dave Rowntree. It's very hard when you're actually involved in it to get any idea of how big it's becoming. You're in a bit of a bubble in a band, you know, so you're kind of insulated from the outside world a bit. There was a point at which we won four Brit Awards and that was when things kind of did get a bit crazy for a while. Blur, Park Live. Blur, Park Live. Blur in Park Live. Blur. Yep, the 1995 Brits were a phenomenal night for Blur, and to this day, it's still the most Brit awards that any artist has gained in a single ceremony. But even in the utopian world of Britpop, there were rivalries, and none as big as Oasis versus Blur. It was the summer of 95, and in one corner, Oasis with their new single roll with it, in the other, Blur with their track, Country House. Here's Dave Roundtree again. The Oasis rivalry really started much earlier. Really, we'd always, since the dawn of the band, kind of kicked against who we saw as our contemporaries. Not least because, back then, in the early 90s, there was four weekly newspapers all full of music gossip. They were just this machine that you had to feed with kind of tittle-tattle and nonsense. And if you, if you weren't getting up to mischief, you weren't getting written about. But the whole system encouraged everybody to misbehave. So we kind of misbehaved quite regularly. And one of the things they loved to print was bands getting in spats with each other. So we got in spats with everybody. Most of the other bands, though, would kind of scurry off into the corners and we slagged them off. But Oasis were different. They were 100% up for it, quip for quip. And uh, there was the real threat of violence with them as well. So it was kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, they had a kind of edge to it. You know what annoys me the most about it all? It's Blur and Oasis. Why do their name get put first? It's Oasis and Blur. That kind of continued for a bit and kind of ramping up in intensity. 
And then we both finished the next single off our album. We're both slated to have the next single off our album released at roughly the same time. They announced theirs, so uh, we announced ours on the same date. They then moved theirs, so we then moved ours on back onto the same date again, and then it was on. In the end, Blur were victorious with their single Country House, bagging the number one spot on August the 20th, 1995. On the actual day of release, it was a huge news story, the, the likes of which I haven't seen before or since for a couple of bands releasing singles. You know, and it was a big news week, so there were actual things happening in the world, not just two bands selling bits of plastic. And, you know, they were all of the... We were headline news on all the channels and uh, journalists were standing outside the record shops interviewing people on the way out, asking them what they'd bought. It's been described as the British heavyweight pop music championship. In one corner, four young middle-class men from the south of England, collectively known as Blur, and in the other corner, five young working-class men from Manchester, called Oasis. They're the two most popular bands in Britain, having sold millions of records, and they're currently engaged in a chart war that set the music industry alight. was we kind of got stapled at the hip ever since you know we didn't really have that much in common with them kind of music actually they were really nice people you know we all got on very well since and well, this is long in the past but it does mean for them and us whenever we get interviewed or anything it's always the last question so tell me about the oasis thing it's the last question because they think you might storm out in the disgust of being asked Although Blur won the Battle of Britpop, Oasis were never short of wins, and at the 1996 Brit Awards, they won Best Band, Album of the Year and Video of the Year for Wonderwall, which came out back in October the previous year. And they made it clear that the rivalry hadn't been put to bed. I'd like to thank um, all the people. All oh, the people. So many people. And they walk Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you By now you should have somehow realized what you gotta do I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now but that wasn't the only outburst from Oasis that night. By 96, both New Labour and Tony Blair seemed to be an unstoppable movement, and the Gallagher brothers weren't afraid to throw their support behind them. There are seven people in this room tonight who are giving a little bit of vote to young people in this country. That is me, our kid, Bonehead, Quigsy, Alan White, Alan McGee and Tony Blair. And if you don't got anything about you, you get up there and you shake Tony Blair's hand, man. He's a man. Because maybe you're gonna be the one that saves me. And after all, you're my wonder wall. Newsreader Catherine McGinn. It was a bit odd to see a musician at their prime essentially endorsing an establishment figure because he is an establishment figure. It's been a great year for British music. A year of creativity, vitality, energy, British bands storming the charts, British music back once again in its rightful place at the top of the world. There are many things that I would like to say to you, but I don't know how. I said maybe you're gonna be the one that saves me. And after all, 
this time, the UK was in the lead up to one of the most infamous elections in recent British history. The optimism drummed up by New Labour showed no sense of waning, and one song managed to perfectly capture the mood of the nation, while solidifying Labour as the party of pop culture. It is, of course, things can only get better, and here's Jamie Petrie, who wrote the song. It was the night I found out I was going to be a father for the first time. I was kind of, I, I was by myself, and I kind of sat down and started to think about the idea of having a child and the responsibility of having a child and how that would fit in with who I am, what I was doing, etc. Um, and I sat down and wrote, uh, You Can Walk My Path. You can walk my path. You can wear my shoes. You can wear my shoes. Learn to talk like me and, and be an angel too. And be an angel too. The song was performed by the Northern Irish band D. Ream, the initial career of physicist Professor Brian Cox. It peaked in January of 94, reaching the number one spot for four weeks straight. And when Labour chose it as the official song for their 1997 campaign, it was launched back into the top 20. I was already working with Pete Kuna and there was no sign of Dereem at this point. And I went over to uh, his place in North London and I played it to him and he was like, oh my God, that is amazing. Uh, and I was kind of like, oh, do you think so? Yeah, cool. So that's kind of how the writing process came about. The song being used as a soundtrack for the election definitely had an impact on it. I began to think, well, talk about change the tune of my song. Um, but anyway, you know, it's, uh, it has a place... Uh, in political history, I guess, so that's not a bad thing. He's comedian and Labour Party member, Matt Ford. Things are going to get better, actually, isn't isn't that positive a, a message? It's basically things are as bad as they're going to get. You know, literally, things are going to get better. Things always can get worse. Um, but the song itself is a really good, uplifting pop song. But did things actually get better? Here's former Labour MP, Sally Keeble. Well, they did. You know, the there was a turnaround in the politics and things did get better. It might have been a very sort of naff and simple sentiment to express, but it did actually happen. The 1997 election was in sight and people seemed ready for change. So after 17 years, I'd never voted. I didn't really ever believe in voting. But at that point, I remember going and voting for Tony Blair. I voted for Labour because we needed change. Um, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, heartache going on in the UK, I suppose, you know, the, the, through the Conservative government being in power for so long. Broadcaster Simon Mayo. We got a memo round from, I think it was Matthew Bannister, who's the controller at Radio 1, saying no triumphalism, you know, because it was quite clear that Labour were going to win the election, which was a shame because I'd already programmed um, Better Days by Bruce Springsteen as the first record on my show, so that had to go, sadly. In the end, Labour didn't just win the general election, it was a landslide. The party won 418 seats, while the Conservatives retained just 165. It was the most seats the Labour Party had ever held to date, and the highest proportion of seats held by any party in the post-war era. There it is, 10 o'clock, and we say Tony Blair is to be Prime Minister and a landslide. And the greatest pride I could ever have is to repay that trust a thousandfold. So that's it for part two. Coming up in part three, we'll discuss New Labour's landslide victory in 1997 before heading to the biggest after-party of the 90s. Back in a minute.
hip-hop. You've got to roll with it. Investigating the music and surrounding culture of the mid-90s on Absolute Radio. Welcome back to Britpop, you got to roll with it on Absolute Radio. I'm Danielle Perry, and to get you up to speed, Labour have just won the 1997 election with a landslide victory. Here's Matt Ford. What I think is really interesting about it is, at once, it is so bizarre and bonkers to get a result like that, but also, it it felt right. Like, Tony Blair was that popular, New Labour was that popular, and the Tories were that unpopular, so it didn't feel like out of step with the way that the country felt. Labour MP Sally Keeble was one of 101 female Labour MPs elected to Parliament in 1997. 120 women were elected to the government that year, the most ever. Even six months before the election, I wasn't certain we'd win. I, I, I didn't realise a landslide. And then after the election, it was like people were going, whoopee, you know, we've kept it secret, but this is what we were doing. There was a real buoyant mood for about a month after the election. It was like everybody was walking on air. It was absolutely amazing. Yes, New Labour were riding high on a historic win, one in which Britpop had played a key role. Here's music journalist Michael Han. Now, Britpop was part of that. Whether or not I like Britpop, Britpop was part of that. It was part of a kind of golden moment. The optimism that was around in summer 1997. I I remember the day after the general election and I was working on a football magazine at the time. It's not as if everyone in our company was Labour voters or everything, but that day just we got into work and pretty much as soon as the pubs opened, we all went to the pub because everyone just wanted to go out because it felt so great to be alive. And who would be more perfect to help Blair celebrate his victory at number 10 Downing Street than Noel Gallagher? Blair hosted a champagne reception marking Labour's victory with a star-studded guest list. In attendance were Lenny Henry, Vivian Westwood, Harry Enfield and many more, as well as broadcaster Simon Mayo. It was a very exciting and very buzzy time. It was a very lovely summer. In fact, we were on holiday in Devon and we came back from the holidays uh, to go to number 10. Uh, It was really just nice to get off the train and say um, number 10 Downing Street Such a prominent and at times controversial figurehead of the Britpop genre attending a party with the new Prime Minister definitely didn't go unnoticed and some saw comparisons with an earlier Prime Minister and an earlier British band Harold Wilson, Labour leader, had won the general election in 1964. He was one of the first political figures to align politics with popular culture by being photographed with the Beatles and giving them awards. Here's Dave Roundtree. So Harold Wilson did it in the 60s, 70s. On the one hand, he got, he did get some kudos from it. On the other hand, he got absolutely mercilessly piss-taken for it and kind of... So I think Tony Blair tried to do it in a slightly more cool way, not to pretend he was hanging out with his mates, but just to have a kind of, you know, best of British, young kind of creatives and have a bit of a, you know, drinks party. (laughs) Keris Matthews. At the time, I remember questioning the wisdom of artists sitting so closely with Westminster. It was quite interesting, you know, when it was all in there in the papers of the band members going to number 10 and stuff but perhaps that was the beginning of the end who knows <laughs> but an early sort of warning bell Here's Michael Han and his perception of Tony Blair A really exciting figure at the time he was very young for a Prime Minister he seemed absolutely in touch with popular culture There was a lot of discussion about Cool Britannia um, but I think that it was it was right to bring youth culture into the tent and and I think it's really important to recognise the importance of British culture and the value of British culture. There are risks with it obviously because you can get away with things if you're a musician, particularly if you're a rock musician that you can't do as a politician. Well I think what politicians and parties are always after is a great photo opportunity and an opportunity that the Downing Street reception gave you know the politicians the opportunity to be photographed with musicians like, you know, Noel Gallagher, who were seen as, you know, the business. And and so 
They were great photo opportunities, great moments that would be played out in the future as emblematic of the, of the relationship between, you know, cool rock stars and cool politicians. Simon Mayo. The people who are kind of embarrassed about going to number 10 Downing Street are fools, really, because it was... What did they think they were being invited to? It was a prime minister who was inviting them. Of course it was a political thing. If they didn't want to get involved, they shouldn't have gone. You know, I just wonder what it was that they thought that, you know, it wasn't a garden party for the Queen. It was a Labour prime minister inviting you for a glass of wine. Of course it's political. Many people didn't know what to make of music icons rubbing shoulders with the government, especially given rock and roll's traditional anti-establishment ethos. Despite this, the mood both within the Labour Party and in the nation was one of positivity. I mean, I can reel off the Labour the Labour successes, the best ever GCSE results, the best ever A-level results, uh, record cuts in crime, the first time in my life that the gap between rich and poor actually narrowed for a while, um, uh, sure start, working families' tax credits, uh, more working-class kids going to university than ever before. The money going into the childcare and the schools, that's what was the most marked, and it was... Also, some of the sort of landmark legislation that we, we, we needed to get through, like minimum wage and some of the justice and equality issues. I mean, it just seemed that after having had this sort of lid on, on everybody's aspirations and what was possible, that that was lifted and then we started to sort of rebuild quite quickly. And here's Alan McGee, founder of Creation Records, on his own role within the Labour government, perfectly capturing the relationship between music and politics at the time. Well, I was part of the government at that point. I ended up joining the government. and the, But the, the main thing I did on that task force is I got musicians on the dole paid. It was called New Deal for Musicians, and you could be three years on the dole as a musician if you could prove that you could vaguely play the guitar. Lots of people did. The new government had started out strong, but could New Labour maintain the same level of positivity that had swept them into power? His journalist Michael Han. For a while there was this notion that anything that came out of Britain must be great. And of course that's good for a government. Any government is going to try and surf that wave. But I very much doubt that the Blair government were any under misapprehension, you know, that that would last forever. And it didn't last forever. Because despite these successes and the original positivity surrounding his government... Tony Blair's legacy would go on to be tainted by the hugely controversial war on Iraq. On Tuesday night, I gave the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. And if war does break out, we should turn around and say that we're prepared to occupy our industries and not be prepared to allow for a war to take place anywhere throughout the world. Well, we can argue forever about the validity of opinion polls, but what surely matters today is that this proposed war by Britain is historically unpopular. And the mother of all focus groups has descended on London to bring that fact home to Tony Blair today. Here's Jamie Petrie, songwriter of the new Labour campaign song, Things Can Only Get Better. And Tony Blair, I guess, was probably the first soundbite politician. It's suddenly all soundbites, statements that... and you know, trying to twist things around instead of actually saying, yeah, this is how it is. We're just putting a spin on it. It's like, wow, they're spinning more than most DJs. I think Tony Blair was the first political pop star, really. Um, and he behaved like he embraced that in a way. But then he made some massive, unforgivable mistakes. Dave Roundtree. When the band releases their second album, there'll be a hardcore of fans that hate it and only like the first album. I think you've sold out. I think from Tony Blair got that second album syndrome from day one. As the faith in Blair began to fade, a similar pattern was forming for various Britpop bands, with their latest releases failing to strike the same chord. Oasis were catapulted to superstardom after releasing only two albums. For their August 1997 Nebworth gig, over two and a half million people applied for tickets. That's roughly one out of every 20 people in the country, and the guest list alone was 7,000 names long. The gig made music news history. It's estimated that the two concerts grossed five and a half million pounds. Last night's concert at Nebworth was carried live on radio stations in 40 different countries around the world. If the British tabloid press didn't like the show, 
the fans on the ground did, and for many of them, it was a night to remember. Oasis's third album, Be Here Now, was released on the 21st of September 1997, just over a month after their legendary gig at Nebworth. The album sold over 420,000 copies on its release, overtaking What's the Story Morning Glory and making it the fastest selling album in British music history. Although the album did receive critical acclaim on its release, throughout the years its status hasn't quite measured up to their earlier records. The rock and roll lifestyle also began to seriously take its toll on many bands across the Britpop genre. His music journalist, Michael Hahn. One thing that made Britpop fade was, was drugs. Um, Oasis were clearly doing enormous industrial quantities of cocaine. I don't think they deny that. Um, Elastica, of course. Justin Frischman got into heroin, which is fairly well documented. Uh, Blur got into fairly serious drugs, which is again well documented. And nothing stymies that sense of instant creativity, which is what Britpop had at its height, um, like getting seriously into drugs, because you're not concentrating on anything else. I mean, Brett Anderson, of course, of Suede, was, was going the same way. Well, there was an awful lot of um, substances about, let's put it that way. But then I can't really, can't put it into context, because I don't know if that, that was probably the same in any creative area in the 80s as well. And there certainly was in the 70s. And so, you know, you can follow that trajectory through across the, you know, the world of music and arts for the longest time, so I don't think it was that. Just think, you know, the ship sailed and eventually, you know, it docks, all sinks. Producer of Elastica's self-titled album, Mark Waterman. You know, once you get onto that merry-go-round, it's gruelling. After the first album came out, they kept them on the road for like 300 dates. They toured the whole of America and all the madness that that brings about with it and they were all really young and just a little bit crazy and I think they just kept them onto the grindstone playing every night, doing everything and I think people were just worn out and destroyed by it more than anything. It's like once you get onto the, the shark ball, it's, it's kind of quite hard to cope with and it's relentless. And they didn't, If they'd have given them a break at some point during that, it might have worked out and they'd have stayed together but there wasn't and everyone was just kind of falling apart I think. Then when they hit the, the kind of success they had, it all becomes very glossy because obviously they're going through the kind of uh, the, the media machine. So everything, suddenly the hairspray comes out <laughs> and all this stuff. It seemed as though the Britpop reign was coming to an end. Here's newsreader Catherine McGinn. So, yeah, I think... British music probably did start losing some of its oomph because I certainly stopped buying music uh, in quite the way that I had before. Over the years, some of the bands would split and the Britpop genre came to an end, as things often do. Some people are curious as to whether we'll ever see such a connection between music and politics again. Here's Matt Ford. Of course it could, yeah. I mean, if you had a, if you had a, if you had a leader of any party that was... Um, Impressive enough, you would get. I mean, to be fair to Corbyn, you know, Stormzy came out in support of him. I'm not sure he's sticking with it, but any political movement, particularly on the left, will always have a. You know, there was Red Wedge long before there was called Britannia, so you know, there'll always be musicians of particular political um, persuasion. I always think it is more powerful when it's a left wing leader, or, or more to the point, a Labour leader, because it does feel more like it's rooted in the working classes. It's interesting that Jeremy Corbyn has has had such a strong response from young people. Um, despite being an older leader than Tony Blair ever was, and also being able to make the connection through his appearance at Glastonbury. Oh, which I think, again, is really important because it enables politics to talk into a youth culture, which, which is, you know, if you look at Lastonbury and what happens at, in Westminster, it, it's chalk and cheese. Um, and yet if you're going to actually engage with young people and with, with the country as it moves forward, you've got to be able to talk into that youth culture and take young people with you. So it's almost time for us to leave you, but before we do, we just have time for some final thoughts. Keris Matthews. Overall, it was a decade which 
felt like there were locks being un undone and doors being opened and a, and a, a new horizon and a good horizon to look forward to. I think that pretty much sums up the feeling. And what do the bands think about this umbrella term, Britpop, in retrospect? Each one of the bands have got their own little particular take on what their Britain is. And that's what makes it all interesting. You know, Blur and Oasis completely different musically. All, we're all shoved into this thing. And I know in Wales at the same time, parallel to the British Britpop movement, there was um, Cool Cymru, Cool Wales. Um, yeah, every time somebody tries to put a handle on something, you know, a label onto the draw, it kind of, as an artist, you kind of get, it sort of raises your hackles a bit because I think for the most part, artists just want to seek truth. Mark Waterman. The construct fell apart and the music changed and people's tastes changed. So it was never, it was never a thing anyway. The whole umbrella term fell apart. Everything got cynical. Oasis and the, the Blur Oasis fight, which was just such, yet again, a media construct, just got stupid. And, you know, once it's on the news and once it becomes mainstream and once it all becomes this thing, it's, it's killed. It no longer has an edge. It no longer is anti. And Britpop's influence on performers today doesn't go unnoticed. Here's Noel Gallagher. You know, I did a gig recently up in Manchester at um, Heaton Park and the crowd is just so young. They know all the, all the old songs and um, it's, it's kind of amazing, do you know what I mean? It's like your crowd when you get to my age is supposed to kind of grow up with you. The ones that started with me have long gone. All their kids are there now, do you know what I mean? It's brilliant. The gigs have got great energy and, and great vibe and I'm so lucky. And finally, Jamie Petrie. It's like now, politics is broken. It's actually broken. So there is, there's another bad thing about that. If you look that, okay, well, if it's broken, at least now, you can start to fix it. And I guess that's also what things can really get better is about new beginnings and fixing things and making it right. With such an incredible legacy, both musically and politically, it's very difficult for anyone to argue the importance of the 90s. It was a decade that marked the rise and fall of Cool Britannia, and it remains to be seen if it can ever happen again. Well, that's all we have time for tonight. I've been Danielle Perry, and you have been listening to Britpop. you got to roll with it. The story of Cool Britannia. Thanks for joining us. Twenty-five years since Cool Britannia was an acceptable phrase. Brip-pop, you've got to roll with it on Absolute Radio.